You're listening to Potluck, the podcast that stirs up a unique flavor of people, culture, and brands in Asia. Hosted, as always, by Scott and Drago. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Potluck. I'm Drago Jurov. And I'm Scott Percival. And just a moment, we'll be joined around the pots, as we like to say, by our guest, uh, Dan Paris from TBWA. And like, as, like us, Dan is a man forever travelling around the region, keeping his finger on the pulse. Uh, speaking of which, Drago, you're fresh off a red-eye flight from Tokyo, um, all for the noble cause of recording this very um, episode. Has that been as bad as it sounds? Yeah, well, fresh not quite the word, but yeah. Um, Tokyo may seem a bit old and tired, you know, compared to some spunky Chinese city, but it's still the hectic, sleepless place uh, um, it's always been, especially with the Olympics coming up. You blink and you've missed something important. Yep. And after such a great Rugby World Cup, which we were uh, privileged to attend, I can see everything being poised for a fantastic uh, Tokyo 2020. I'm actually just back from Wuhan in China myself. Have you have you been there, Drago? Yeah, beautiful place. Uh, last time I was there was a couple of years ago. I was looking at attractions from Madame Tussauds. What were you there for? Okay, a bit different for me. I was tucking into buckets of mala crayfish uh, in amongst discovering the world of modern motherhood in uh, second-tier China. So, yeah, a little bit of a different experience, but some, some place all the, all the same. Okay, uh, enough to chat. Uh, to kick things off, uh, we have a couple of bite-sized stories, spoonfuls, if you will, um, that have been on our radar this week. Still on the topic of Japan. Uh, Japan, you know, the country where people never take time off and uh, they love to work. Well, we recently got the data from an experiment at Microsoft Japan. So um, what they did is introduce this four-day work week for a month every Friday in August. was off. Paid holiday for the entire workforce, 2,300 people. It was a huge success. For the organization, um, they had a a 40% increase in productivity, but also for um, the individual employee. 92% of them uh, seemed to have enjoyed the experience and said it really benefited their personal and work lives. Now, we've seen such stories before, but I had the funny feeling that a few details were missing from the initial uh, press release. I think now we know what exactly happened and why this thing was so successful. For me, it all came down to addressing uh, some key cultural pain points. So three things for me. First, forced decision-making. Japanese uh, companies uh, are known uh, uh, for their low productivity among the lowest in OECD countries. A constant series of meetings taking place all the time and uh, nothing leads anywhere. So how do you get people to get to a decision? Here, people are forced to finish meetings in 30 minutes. Get in, get out, and get on with it. Not a part of the culture, but the time limitation forced the hand of culture here. Two, focus on key stakeholders. The reason Japanese companies never get stuff done is because there's this constant need for consensus, harmony among stakeholders. So the company introduced a rule to conduct meetings with five people or fewer. Boom, bring in just the main peeps, and you get to a decision more quickly. And finally, form matters. Japanese employees get bogged down in Monday tasks, all this admin stuff, so uh, they really don't get uh, enough time to think big picture or innovation for that matter. The rule introduced here involved requirements for more communication via chat rather than email or face-to-face. So uh, this form of communication removed a necessary formality or chit-chat, so get straight to the point and get it done. 
You know, Scott, um, I lived in Japan for 14 years, uh, working for a couple of companies, and uh, it's always been really interesting how overpowering culture is, how it always kind of takes over the organization. So this, to me, is a very interesting example of how corporate culture can force the hand of wider culture. The question, uh, of course, uh, is can it last longer than a month? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I guess one of the reasons we both work independently is the, uh, the desire of working more flexibly, working around life. Um, rather than the other way around. But I think, uh, I guess the challenge for us is trying to keep up with always on clients who maybe wouldn't respect having a Friday off or a Monday off. So I think it's something to, to keep an eye on uh, as more and more corporations uh, go that way. Yeah, yeah, that's certainly something to keep an eye on. What do you got? Okay, so from my side, uh, Drago, believe it or not, something I've noticed a lot this week is the topic of kindness. Now, of course, we've had the whole random acts of kindness movement for a few years now, this kind of counter-reaction to the negative traits of big city living, social media cocoons. At the same time, there's talk about the kind of... uh, kind leadership creeping its way into the boardroom, perhaps driven by a push towards, you know, more female representation in the boardroom, more empathetic ways of leading. Um, And I think actually one of the reasons we're hearing kindness talked about, surprise, surprise, is it was World Kindness Day, I think, last week. Um, And one of the local brands here, uh, Gojek in Singapore, jumped onto the bandwagon, uh, produced a video where Farouk Fuzz, the local uh, comedian, was actually acting as as driver for the day, picking up various uh, riders, various strangers, um, from around Singapore and the key kind of premise of, of the of the video was you know, Fuzz was asking the riders um, what words they knew in other languages you know did they know words of encouragement of positivity uh, you know of their friends partners uh, neighbours and surprise surprise the main words they knew were you know those those Hokkien or those Tamil or those you know Cantonese swear words basically the bad stuff um all a kind of comedic way of making the point that we very really know words of encouragement, uh, of positivity, of of empathy in other languages, even of those that are close to us. Now, okay, you could argue there's a limited link back to the Gojek brand. Uh, perhaps they were looking for some kind of injection of warmth and humanity that these platform brands are often struggling with. But I think it is an interesting way of linking the subject of kindness to the bigger topic of diversity, uh, how you can bridge connections between people, um, that's something we'll be touching on with Dan actually in a moment in terms of how technology can play a part in actually being more of an emotional support versus an emotional like division, if you like. Um, so yeah, on the subject of kindness, uh, joining us this week is uh, Dan Paris, Regional Director of Business Development at TBWA Asia Pacific. Um, just to give you a little bit of background, Dan and I have known each other since I think it was 2013 or 14. I wasn't quite sure working this out, but basically we crossed paths working for the likes of Pfizer initially. Um, and then a couple of years ago, uh, we collaborated on a paper uh, boldly named The Rise of the Machines. Uh, that was based on interviewing senior execs the likes of IBM, Hilton, uh, MasterCards, which actually still stand out in my mind as some of the most interesting conversations I've had in, in recent years. Um, so yeah, without further ado, uh, Dan, I uh, hope you're well. Perhaps you could give us a quick introduction to your uh, your role and your, your background here in Singapore. Good morning to you both. Thanks for having me on board today. Um, as I said, um, I've been working at TBWA since I arrived in Singapore in 2002. So it's uh, 17 years of commitment to this agency, which has been a, a, long, a long journey. 
So I've done multiple roles since I've been with, uh, with TBWA, but in the last several years, I guess my, my area of focus is really on growth uh, and the future of, of where we're going as a, as a network um, across Asia. So I spend a lot of time in different markets. Um, my time's sort of broadly split between the obvious big pictures of business development, classically you know, hunting and looking for, uh, for new clients. Um, secondly, helping clients grow organically within our network in terms of capability sets. And then a third area really is, um, is focused on marketing. Um, so a lot of thought leadership work, conferences, um, roundtables, and, and various things that I work with. Uh, so across the agencies that we work with, but also obviously being an Omnicom agency, that's where we passed, uh, crossed our paths really, working on a, on a research piece. Okay, fantastic. So I think since we first worked on the Rise of the Machines uh, paper a couple of years ago, I know that you've been taking that content, running with it. I think you described it as the kind of evergreen uh, subject matter, Dan. And obviously you've been taking those big themes that we distilled to a host of agency people, marketers, you know, clients across different markets and sectors in Asia. So I guess one of the questions we, we wanted to start with was, you know, what's the response been like? What's the kind of reaction been from these, you know, the senior guys trying to navigate, you know, the landscape in Asia? And I know there's a few hard truths in some of the things we, we had to tell them. So yeah, just interesting to get your take on that. Yeah, I remember when we first, um, we t- first took this subject, um, TBWA has a, a series of uh, what we call edges, you know, looking at what the, the next few years look like. These are sort of the, the cultural barometers of, uh, of certain aspects of society that we think are going to be of interest to our clients. When I saw Rise of the Machines, um, that's when I approached you and said, I, re- I think this is going to be a really interesting piece. So when we first put it together, it was a lot of work to put it together. Um, we, we had a number of clients that contributed to it, um, both uh, at, at, from our client base and from your client base, um, and we packaged it up and turned it into uh, material. Um, so I think the first time we presented it, I think uh, you got a sense of sort of bewilderment, um, um, fear, um, and also inspiration. I guess you kind of see a, a polarity of uh, reaction. But over the years, I've been presenting it, and we've obviously up- updated it, and we're sort of on version four now. Um, you, you, fundamentally, I think it inspires people. I think people um, recognize the need to embrace technology, um, how far they're, they're prepared to embrace technology and how to look at the transformation they need to go for um, it varies by client and varies by category. I think certainly we talk about 20th century organisations and 21st century organisations. I think legacy organisations tend to struggle with how to employ it. They don't work at the same speed as modern organisations. They don't have uh, um, organisational structures that move quickly and fluidly. Um, so they tend to be slightly more frightened of the advent of major technology change but um, modern organizations are more nimble and I think they, they they like where we're going they like what we're talking about okay I think we're going to come on to those modern organizations in just a moment I think I guess there were, we know there was these different themes at play I guess different messages and lessons within those um, are there any of those you, you feel have been really pertinent any of the any of the angles we can have uncovered that you feel are um, you know, I think we talked about the, you know, embracing the new, the new realities and, uh, you know, there was, there was so much there. Is there anything you feel has really kind of had traction? Well, I think, I mean, fundamentally, everyone's worried about growth. Everyone recognizes the, the challenges of driving their business forward. You know, we all live in a capitalist environment and we're all chasing our quarters. I mean, that's the same for everyone. You know, fundamentally, that's how the, how the world is wired up. 
But what we do see regularly is organisations attempting to try stuff out. And I think that appetite for, for trial, appetite to bring some sort of technology into their marketing culture um, is, is starting to separate the, the organisations that we're seeing out there. So even really strange organisations like Domino's, for example, um, have spent an awful lot of time playing around with technology and trying out new things. They're not, they're not frightened of trying things. And I think that, and that was one of the themes, wasn't it, to embrace your technological, technological fears. And, and I think that's the key thing. You've got to start trying. You've got to start playing and seeing how it works. And um, we often talk about failing fast. You know, if it doesn't work, move on, learn from it and move on to the next thing. Um, but fundamentally, you've got to start somewhere and you've got to you know, get on with trying things. Great. That's very interesting. Um, let's change gears a bit. Now, speaking of embracing technology and the importance and inevitability of embracing technology, uh, we're aware that you uh, have a keen interest in, uh, um, in the big picture, as it were. Uh, so in uh, earlier conversations, you were talking about the uh, fourth industrial revolution. You were talking about um, how things are changing. And um, you also mentioned uh, a book that inspired you, um, the uh, Homo sapiens book by Yuval Noah Harari, uh, and how uh, the definition of what it means to be human uh, perhaps uh, may be changing in the next 10 to, um, 10 to 20 years. Could you share a few thoughts uh, 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 on that front with us? Yeah, sure. I mean, a couple of years ago, I was lucky enough to go to the World Economic Forum in China. It's um, a summer festival. Their winter festival in Davos happens every year, but they have a summer festival. And two years ago, it was in Dalian in China. And I didn't know. I, didn't, I went not knowing really what to expect, but I was blown away by just the sheer advances that were happening in technology across all sorts of space, from from automation of vehicles, for example, um, to the creation of energy, um, and obviously in healthcare. Um, it was just a eye-opening, bewildering kind of array of technology on show. Um, and the theme of that particular platform was the fourth industrial revolution. And you you can't help but feel we are coming into a into a real step change. Um, in terms of where technology advances. So, and to raise your other point about the, uh, Hariri's book, um, I mean, I've, I'm about a third of the way in and, uh, and it's interesting looking at the origins of man and then looking at, uh, you know, man went through a, a very first revolution, which he, he called the cognitive revolution, you know, a, a moment where humans became aware of themselves for the first time and started organising themselves into structures um, and one of the first things they recognised was that they couldn't really get beyond 150 people because of gossip and because of uh, there was only room for really one alpha to control that group. I mean, it was quite quite fascinating to read what he had to say. So they started inventing concepts over and above um, of, of what they were talking about. So essentially concepts like magic or um, religion or um, um, following the stars, celestial worship, for example, are all concepts that were driven out of this cognitive revolution. And, and one could argue that even brands, these, these are invisible territories that, that you place them in your mind, are, are concepts that we relate to. They, they create tribal connections with the way that we interact with the world. So I think if you, if you bring that all together, um, you know, we're about to go through a a fundamental step change with technology in this coming decade. Um, we're at the end, I and mean, this is the last conversation I'm having in 2019. We're about to go into 2020. Everyone is either highly anticipating or slightly fearful of the advent of 5G um, and what that might mean in terms of advancement. Certainly, we're going to see a significant acceleration in technology because of 5G. You know, all, I mean, a lot of people want to talk about how fast you can download a film. I mean, to be honest, what we're going to be more interested in is the automation of vehicles 
vehicles on the streets, automation of trucks, and, the, and just the ability to send immense amount of data and in real time around the world so that people can work with each other in a completely different way. It will, it will probably bring a next level of, of creativity in, a, in, in areas that we just can't anticipate right now. Is there anything of particular interest to you when it comes to uh, our region, to Asia? Uh, now, you may remember uh, you and I saw um, Parag Khanna, the author of um, The Future is Asian, mm. at the Marketing Society event a couple of weeks ago. Uh, is there anything um, related to that that uh, might that to you might give us uh, a few thoughts about uh, what might happen in the future? Well, I think um, you know, I've been lucky to live here in Singapore for 17 years now, and um, and I've spent a lot of time travelling across all the different markets. Um, I haven't been to Wunan though; I mean, that's on my list. Um, but Tokyo, obviously, I've been to a fair number of times. I spent a lot of time in China, and and the one thing that keeps me here is just the speed and energy and and the, and the dynamics of what is a, a, a fundamentally fluid marketplace. And when I saw Parakana's Um, talk, I couldn't help but resonate with me just how powerful that speed is, the ability to just get on with it. I mean, what he reflects on is the fact that even though every single market has got a different structure in terms of how it runs its economy, a different religious system, a different economic system, um, fundamentally, Asian markets have learned to get on with each other very well and to, to drive significant amount of trade and interaction with each other without really any problems. We should also recognize that in Asia, the, the, we're dominated by very young markets, maybe not, maybe not in Japan, but certainly if you look at Vietnam, you look at Indonesia, you look at Malaysia, um, quite young, dynamic um, um, demographics, all hungry to, to get on with stuff. Um, and that's certainly a, a, an element I think will, will lead into what I was just talking about in terms of 5G and the, and the appetite for growth. I mean, it will certainly be a big driver. Okay, so coming back to TBWA, um, obviously you're known as the disruption company. I think that's even you know copyrighted or, or TM'd. We like to TM uh, things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, obviously, a, that's a big reason behind why you're so passionate about this evolving influence of tech and people's lives and and culture, which is another big aspect of what the agency um, talks about. Now, getting down to fundamentals a little bit, we hear this word disruption thrown about a lot, but through you know how you would articulate it from a TBWA perspective, how do you guys define disruption? Or how do you define disruption to clients that ask about it? Look, one of the reasons I joined TBWA in the first place was this philosophy called disruption. I fell in love with the, the, the simple, logical mechanism that it stands for in terms of strategic philosophy. Uh, at, at the heart of um, the philosophy is, is, is a belief that most organizations or mo most marketplaces operate around a series of conventions, a sort of unwritten set of rules, I guess, that, that people respond to. And, uh, and that's why everyone ends up marketing the same way, why packaging all ends up looking the same way. So if you walk into supermarkets, you often look at shelves and you, it's very hard to tell the difference between one brand or another, which, which causes, you know, causes issues for brands that get stuck because of these conventions. So we, we often sort of articulate as that that's kind of what's the enemy that we're going to tackle. You know, that's what, what, what's the problem that we're going to fight for. Um, and then on the counterpoint to that, does this organization or this brand um, have a clear sense of its vision, a, a clear sense of its direction, what it's going to stand for? Because if there is really good tension between the enemy and the vision of where you want to go for, you suddenly realize you've got a, you know, an opportunity to create white space for yourself. And that's what disruption has always been about, creating white space um, for, for a huge amount of change. Um, a, a positive growth strategy is essentially at the heart of what disruption stands for. Now, you know, initially, you know, in those early days, a lot of that work would have been represented in terms of um, in terms of 
communication work, creative work, you know, how do we disrupt creatively around and talk in a different way to our competitors? But increasingly, that's that's lent into business models. I mean, you've seen the advent of lots of things in the last 10 years where major industries have been disrupted. You know, we can talk about Uber in the news today, you know, in terms of their license being revoked in London. But they were a huge disruptor to essentially the taxi, the very closed off taxi system. The convention was you have to get a taxi as an alternative to public transport. Um, but certainly, if you then look at Netflix, you look at uh, Airbnb, you look at all these organizations, one after another, they've made fundamental changes to categories that have stood there forever and this is going to keep accelerating so disruption for us sits at the heart of how we think um, increasingly um, we're moving upstream to basically help clients really think about the transformation moments they need to go through and so it's not just about communication it's about product it's about channels it's about platforms and um, and giving a real sense of direction of what the future looks like for these businesses okay and you've already touched on some of those more dynamic young emerging asian markets you mentioned obviously some of the powerhouses like in china and japan what do you think about this from a from an Asian lens? So would you say, for example, people are perhaps more open to the change and transformation that disruption brings? You know, they're hum, hungry for those leapfrog moments to, you know, accelerate perhaps Western markets maybe being a bit slower on that front. Do you have any any take on that? Well, when I first got to, to Singapore, um, disruption actually was a quite a scary word. If I talked to disruption uh, disruption to a number of clients, they'd say, no, I don't want that. I want the same as everybody else. It was it was a, it was a word that was a little scary. But I think now that everyone you know, recognises how fast the marketplaces move, um, how quickly ideas wither away, um, disruption now is uh, you know, an, Im- an important part of the conversation. So we see, we see a lot of clients hungry for, um, for radical thinking and for breakthrough thinking. Um, and that's and that's true across all markets. And there's a there's a fantastic line in one of your uh, one of your your numerous slides that you have, Dan, which is around you know competition or your competition is everything in culture and that that message you're saying to brands of redefining you know particularly from a kind of comms and content perspective you know who you're trying to actually compete against. Can you tell me a bit more about whether you think brands have really grasped that point and when you make that point you know how they how they respond. Well, I mean, you'll know as well as me from a research point of view, every single brand that we grew up with in our early days of marketing would look at um, the dynamics of the competitor. You know, we'd look at who's got what share points. We'd be discussing Nielsen data all the time in, in meetings, looking at how, who's, who, what's, the, what's the rolling trend on, on share, who's doing this, who's doing that, looking at competitive uh, studies and all the rest of it. It was intrinsically baked into the way that marketing worked. But fundamentally, because of the advent of social media, because of the advent of platforms, you know, people are distracted. You know, people spend a lot of time consuming an immense amount of content. And really now, unless brands have cultural relevance, they're not going to sit in everyone's feed. So we're trying to get clients to understand that actually the competition isn't necessarily the other guy the competition is the speed of culture and how are you going to place yourself in there do you have relevance do you have purpose do you have something that's relevant within the couple of seconds um, thumb time that you've got with regards to um, the delivery on, on platforms on particularly on devices like mobile phones that's great so Dan talking about disruption um, is disruption really not about doing something new and revolutionary but perhaps about doing something that fundamentally fundamental and important to the human condition, like, say, brand purpose, for example? Well, I mean, brand purpose has been an emerging theme, I guess, over the last few years. And I think it's driven by by culture and by the fact that people are so now connected to culture. 
Um, as you know, um, the, the sort of the showcase event of, um, of our industry, the creative industry, um, every year is at the Cannes Advertising Festival. I mean, now it's called the Cannes Festival of Creativity. Um, and every year, um, the, the purpose conversation seems to be growing and growing to the point now where I'd argue that it's one of the major pillars of, of how you hold up um, the, the Cannes Festival. And purpose is becoming a... A, a very significant part of how brands are judged. That's, that's driven by the fact that, you know, what we call the millennial audience, I guess, are becoming more and more informed about what brands are doing what, you know, do they have an ethical code? Um, how, what's their supply chain like? You know, do they, um, do they give back to societies that they operate in? And, and it goes on and on and on. I mean, I think fundamentally um, the, the visibility of information like that is, is, is making consumers question who they want to spend their money with. It's becoming uh, a significant part of it. Now, back to disruption, that means some organisations have never had that kind of conversation or have no sense of what that purpose is need to disrupt themselves internally to think about um, creating that mission, creating that sense of purpose. And, and driving an agenda that creates change for them, part of their transformation journey, I guess. Um, from your experience working with brands across the region, um, do you see a difference between brands who are actively thinking about it um, uh, versus brands that are, acting on, that, that are acting on it? So, you know, uh, do you see a difference in the way um, people respond to brands that are walking the walk versus brands that are talking the talk, just talking the talk? Yeah, well, I mean, back to back to Cannes this year. Um, I think one of the landmark moments in in the whole festival for me was uh, Alan Jope, who's the CEO of Unilever, was on stage, and it's a large audience. I mean, it's a few thousand people in the room. Basically, made a pledge that for going forward, every single one of his brands now has to have a sense of purpose and give back to the communities that they're operating in. And any brands that don't have purpose or they can't identify or build a sense of purpose for those brands, um, they will sell them or let them go. I I mean, one way or another, they don't belong in the next chapter of Unilever's sort of portfolio, I guess. And any brands they, they acquire or they develop internally um, will have a sense of purpose baked into them. That's a, I mean, that's a significant statement from a, you know, a, a large legacy um, you know, multinational um, to, to make a pledge like that. Um, you're seeing P&G go the same way in the US and it's tackling a lot of issues that aren't being dealt with by, by governments. Um, and I think what we are seeing is that consumers are starting to look to brands to stand for some of the issues that, are, that need to be addressed, whether that's gender equality, racial equality, supply chain. Um, and that's, you know, this is higher order roles for these brands and, and probably not something they'd anticipated, you know, 20 years ago. But certainly um, that seems to be where, you know, the market is headed down. You've been listening to Potluck, bringing to the table unique insight into Asian brands and consumers, presented by me, Scott Percival. And me, Drago Juro. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Potluck. See you for the next edition of Potluck. And in the meantime, keep, keep it, it brewing. brewing.